Hello, and welcome to the High Street Community Church Podcast. We're so excited you're learning alongside us, and we pray this message leads you closer to the Lord and others. High Street Community Church is simply a family of friends following Jesus. God bless you as you listen. Wow, Christmas has already happened. Can you believe it? Flew by. Who ate too much good food? Yeah. Um, and the New Year's just around the corner. Can you believe it? 2019's almost over. That's crazy. Who thought we'd make it to 2019? Yeah. Um, yeah, 2020's coming up. Um, and that got me thinking uh, about another New Year's Eve that I experienced about 13 years ago. So I, I get to talk about uh, the adventure of joy was my previous sermon, and this sermon is continuing the adventure of joy. And that, my previous sermon, I talked about Carrie and I when we got engaged. So this is another Carrie and me story. 13 years ago, I believe that's correct, it was New Year's Eve, Christmas had already happened, and Carrie and I both had gone to Urbana through Biola University. Urbana is a big conference that happens in St. Louis now, in the Ram Stadium. They have over 10,000 students. Really fun time, worship, uh, teaching, connection with people who you've never met before. It's just an amazing time. You're away from school. It's really refreshing. Um, It was also a time where Carrie and I were flirting a lot. We hadn't started dating yet. I liked her, and um, she was kind of like, you know, so-so about me at that point. But we were friends. We were, we, were clo- we were close friends. And so it was the last night, and on the last night of Urbana, it, they, they schedule it on New Year's Eve. And you ring in the new year by taking communion with over 10,000 people. You do a long worship service, beautiful time. You know, you've spent these days learning and growing together, and you're anticipating, like, consecrating that moment, that moment to God for the new year. And so we, they pass around, you know, it's, it, there's tons of people, so they have the little tiniest little communion cups and the little tiniest little wafer of bread. And so I'm sitting there, and I'm sitting next to Carrie, and I think we're on the ground floor, and there's these giant screens, and the band's playing, and we're, we're coming up to the new year. I, I'm sure it's at the countdown. I don't know what number it was. But at some point in there, I'm holding my cup, praying, thinking about God, and I, it slips through my fingers. And people who know me well won't be surprised. But it, I drop it and my communion juice spills all over the floor. And suddenly I'm like, oh shoot, like, this is like my God moment for the year. You know, I'm coming in, I'm praying, <laughs> excited, and suddenly, like, Jesus' blood is spilled all over the floor, and I'm not going to get a share in communion with all of these people and, and you know, wring uh, in this, this godly moment. And so I'm, I'm disappointed, uh, confused, looking at this cup on the floor, Everyone else is in their own moment, like worshiping God, and uh, the music's so loud no one would ever notice. And I, I probably would have stayed in that disappointment for a long time, but Carrie saw me in that moment. And I don't know how, what made her think to look over, maybe that she was going to like me someday. I don't know. <laughs> but she, she glanced over and saw that I'd spilled my juice. And so I, I had picked up my cup at that point, and it was empty, which was also very symbolic. And um, she offered me, without saying anything, half of her juice. She just kind of motioned and poured half of her juice 
into my little cup. So we both had half a communion amount of juice. Um, and suddenly for me, I had different options. And that has really, that's been a big parallel. It was a big moment for me in my uh, relationship with Carrie. And it's been something I paralleled with her when we got engaged. It was part of our wedding ceremony. That, that moment of her giving and seeing and noticing it, like, meant so much from her to me. But then also was like so symbolic of the Lord too and seeing me and noticing me even when like my cup is empty. So beautiful story. Uh, but I really, I wasn't going to ask anyone for their communion juice. Like that's kind of selfish, right? To be like, hey, can I have some of your communion juice? You have less communion going into the new year. But it was so cool. I really, I would have stayed there. But Carrie gave me different options when she noticed, um, noticed my plight. And we were both able to ring in the new year, worshiping God, sharing communion, uh, honoring what Jesus had done for us and like expecting great things. And we started dating that next year, so great thing, all right? That was good. Um, So we're talking about continuing the adventure of joy. And uh, I want you to hold that story in the back of your mind. Previously, my last sermon, which was mid-December, the main point that I encouraged us to notice was noticing how joy in sorrow are arriving together in the Christmas season. They're there all the time. It's all over the Bible, but just to see them together, not to like overdo one, I'm all joyful right now spontaneously, or I'm all sorrowful, but to like see, oh, these happened, a lot of times these arrive together. And then to begin to hold those together a little bit, hold them, and rather than see them as one or the other, be like, oh, there's joy and sorrow right now. I'm seeing them, God's seeing that, and that's actually a beginning, a good work. And we looked at that in the life of Zechariah, and how he and his wife had struggled with fertility, they were barren, and suddenly God saw his prayer, sent him an angel to say, hey, like, you're, you're going to have a son, and he goes like, you know, I don't really know how to receive that right now. And there was something in his heart that was caught off guard by the full joy that God wanted to present to him. So we were also wanting to prepare our hearts just like God was having Zechariah's heart prepared. So today we're going to continue in that. As we hold joy and sorrow... Um, and, as, and maybe for you, as you've held joy and sorrow over the past few weeks, you can actually begin to recognize a temptation to deal with sorrow apart from God, to deal with the pain or like the surprising family relationship or the disappointment we talked about, two people who passed, the disappointment of losing people in your life, anything that had happened during this Christmas season or coming into the new year, there's a temptation to deal with that apart from God. But God has given us another option, just like Carrie was another option for me. Um, God has given us another option in Jesus. And that's what's so cool. That's why this is an adventure, the parenthesis around Advent, is that Jesus has come. And that changes everything. Uh, When we enter into purposeful joy uh, because of Jesus, that uh, gives us opportunity to lament sorrow in relationship with God in such a way that it prepares our hearts for full joy. So we're not stopped up, we're not blocked up anymore, we actually are open to the full joy that God might bring us. And I saw that actually in that psalm today, Uh, there's two points where that was brought up. One where, I think it was Psalm 147, it said that God heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. That's like God's heart towards us. This this is what we're talking about this morning. The other one I thought was kind of cool was where it talked about God sending the snow and the cold and the ice, and obviously we kind of celebrate that at Christmas, but that's actually like the ground is hard, it's, it's, it's not um, malleable, and, so, and then it said God sends his word, and it's melted, 
And that's, that's this idea, too, that there's this, there's this softness to the Lord. Um, Isaiah 53, I, I think, really shows this. It talks about Jesus, and it's prophesying about him um, in the Old Testament and him coming. And it talks about him being a man of grief. And I wanted to read those verses just as like, um, you know, an anchor for this, what we're going to talk about. Isaiah 53 says, Jesus was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. I don't know if you noticed in there, it talks about sin, and this is a familiar passage when we think about Jesus dying for our sins, but it also talked a lot about grief, sorrow, affliction. Did you know that Advent, the cross, the resurrection of Jesus, deals both with our sin and our sorrow? I didn't know that until years a couple of years ago when it, it blew up in my mind. Of, wow, like, it makes such a difference that it's not just about sin. That it's also about him healing our hearts. So today I wanted to jump into a passage that really brings this to light. And this is uh, helping to spell out what I believe happened in Zechariah's heart from my last sermon. If you want to listen to that, that's on our podcast. We're going to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 7. And we're going to look at verses, mainly verses 9 through 10. So go ahead and open up to that in your Bibles. And Paul spells out for us in this section two types of sorrow. Paul is uh, writing this letter to the Corinthians. He writes two of them, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. You might be familiar with that. But in between 1 and 2 Corinthians is Corinthians 1.5 or something like that. It's a letter that was actually lost that Paul wrote to the Corinthians that caused them anguish, sorrow, grief because of the things he had to write to them. And Paul, in the beginning of 2 Corinthians, says, I wrote that letter with tears, knowing that it may cause you grief, but that the grief would lead to joy. The grief, would lead, the grief was actually, he was saying, it was out of love that you would experience true love that would bring joy. And... Um, so this, he mentions the letter again in this section that we're going to look at. And um, so there's two types of sorrow that I think he clarifies here for us in this point. And, you know, we all encounter sorrow, right? Like, we can't avoid sorrow. Jesus even says it, like, uh, you know, you will have trouble in this world. It's not you might or, you know, if you, if you follow God's laws, you're going to get out of it. Uh, we all have sorrow. We all have that moment where your heart just drops, because of whatever bad news just happened. And that sorrow contains for us like a whole slew of heart-level questions. And I'm sure you guys could spell these out better than I can for your situation, but these are some I thought of. Like, God, why are you doing this to me? I don't know if you've ever asked that. Or, have I done something wrong? Or, why does everyone else have it easier than me? Um, or, maybe God just doesn't care. You know, or maybe he, if he doesn't, if he's not involved in this, maybe he doesn't even exist. 
You know, or what, what did I do to deserve this? We can't avoid these questions. I think they're normal. They're part of going through a broken world. But what is crucial is how we navigate the questions that sorrow brings and how we navigate them on the path towards joy. So the first type of sorrow that Paul talks about is worldly sorrow. The second type of sorrow Paul talks about is godly sorrow. So let's read these verses, and we'll see how he spells this out. So he's talking about his letter to the Corinthians here in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 9. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. That's that, that, I've been pondering on that for, I don't know, months now, maybe longer. So I want to explore worldly sorrow for a moment. Worldly sorrow answers those questions that we're talking about of suffering and pain, that heart drop, according to the disordered world. Paul says that they lead to death. Worldly grief leads to death. Now, how many of you have grieved in a worldly way? Are you dead? No, no, you're not, because you're raising your hand right now. Okay, so in Hebrew, death doesn't mean necessarily physical death. It means separation. Now, it, it comes out of the idea of when you die, you're separated from your loved ones. But it also implies that we're separated from God. It's a relational separation. So this is, worldly grief produces relational death. It, it, uh, the way that I, I summarize it here is that grief and sorrow dealt with independent of God leads to godless conclusions and godless results. The best way to see worldly sorrow is to observe the sorrows in the world. It's somewhat like a fish trying to find water or us trying to find air. It's so present that we don't even see it sometimes until we start to look at the entirety of what God has done. So if you observe how the disordered world deals with pain, then you'll begin to see what worldly sorrow looks like. I have some examples here. Blame. I do this. We all do this. Something happens, gut reaction, Blame somebody else. Someone, anyone, except me. Another one, self-medicating. So if you look at the world, there's a million things to be addicted to. You can be addicted to everything from heroin to television. Self-medicating is a way of avoiding and dealing with it in a disordered way, dealing with pain in a disordered way. Abuse. You abuse yourself abuse others. I think in the church, we get away with a lot of, um, uh, this is church in general, 
judgmental abuse, making judgments of people that aren't necessarily God's heart towards them. Um, and another one is stuffing it. I think this across the board is the major way that the church and generally good people deal with sorrow in a worldly way. You pretend to be good, pretend to be good, but don't deal with the actual pain that's there. And that causes, like that Psalm 147 talked about, a winter over your heart, a winter where you grow hard, you can grow angry. I was just read the Christmas Carol. I think Mr. Scrooge, Ebenezer Scrooge, is a great example of stuffing it. So here's the questions for us. What are some of the ways that we have dealt with sorrow and pain independent of God? For some of us, there may be no concept of a different option than dealing with pain alone and independent of God. And for others, this may be a place of weariness. I'm just tired of sorrow. I've had too much of it. So I'm shutting down or giving up or whatever. Or some of us, we're in a season of disorientation. The sorrow I carry is just too big for God. Or I'm just so lost, I don't even know what to say. I don't even have words right now for it. Those types of things are okay. I was thinking, uh, it's like being on a long road trip in a car, cross country. Your goal is to get from California to New York. You're somewhere in the middle, and your car breaks down next to a gas station. Maybe you ran out of gas. Maybe you got a flat tire. Something fixable. And instead of walking into the gas station, worldly sorrow says, eh, I'll just walk there. It doesn't make sense, but it seems to make sense emotionally. So it's logically, there's a gas station right next to us. I mean, logically, we're like, my car's broken down. I'm so frustrated. I've been kicking it, whatever. I'm just going to hoof it on my own. Not knowing that there's a supply of life that's been, you know, it's planted right next to us in the middle of the situation. So here's the problem. Sorrow, according to the disordered world, actually, like, reforms our reality around independence from God. So we actually lose, when we, when we live, when we practice worldly grief and worldly sorrow, we begin to lose the concept of God having any desire or ability to deal with our pain. So we end up often in, well, it's just human nature to stuff it. It's just human nature to blame. It's just human nature to be addicted to something. But that's not according to God. God didn't make humans to do those things. So we end up living under a false belief that we can handle our pain and sorrow, and we can handle it better, better than God, and we can handle it without God's help. So we're hoofing it to New York. And we start to believe that God either doesn't care or doesn't pay attention or isn't even powerful to do anything for us in the midst of our current circumstances. So we end up, end up in a living separation from God, or like the Hebrews would call it, relational death. Our reality then reinforces our unbelief. And we uh, have responses to the gifts of God like Zechariah. Wait, really? Like, that doesn't make sense. I don't have any grid for that anymore. 
The surprising thing about worldly sorrow in the Bible is that God doesn't necessarily condemn worldly sorrow. He points to the truth. Here, Paul goes, this leads to death. It's going to kill you if you keep walking this way. But God often, and we see this especially in the life of Jesus, responds to worldly sorrow with compassion because he knows the world's hard. uh, Romans chapter 2 says, or do you not know that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? It's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. It's God's kindness that leads us back to him. Danny talked about in Hebrews, uh, I believe it's chapter 11, the verse that we have to believe that God is and that he is the rewarder of those who come to him. A lot of us believe God is, even in church, but we don't necessarily believe he's the rewarder of those who come to him. Even in John 4, you see Jesus show up to the woman at the well. She's there. She's been living with five different guys. She's gone through abuse. She's gone through huge shaming culturally. She's living in sin right now. She's hiding from others. That's why she's at the well right then. And how does Jesus respond? He reveals himself to her in the middle of her circumstances. And what's her reaction? What? She goes crazy. She has full joy. Once she really gets who Jesus is in the middle of, what, of, of her pain, or her sorrow, she goes to tell everybody about it. So the coming of Jesus, the knowledge of him being in Isaiah 53, the one who bore our griefs, bore our sorrows on the cross, gives us a new grid for dealing with sorrow. And this is where Paul talks about godly grief, godly sorrow. He said, godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Now, when I hear salvation without regret, I mean, at first I was like, why would anyone regret salvation? And then I considered, well, maybe it's, pe- it's like you go through such a hard time, you're like, oh, I just wish I hadn't followed Jesus. This is so hard or so frustrating or it doesn't make sense with this, so I can't reconcile it. Um, but that's actually not what that word is. In, in the Greek, I looked it up. And he says this word that's hard to say in, in English, but ametamaleptos, which a lot of translators translate it as salvation without regret, but it, it means um, things not to be repented of, the things unregretted. Um, so it could be said, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to the things that would never be repented of. Another translation that I really liked said that godly grief leads to repentance, or godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation affording supreme joys. Now, I think supreme joys was what intrigued me when I was studying that passage. Supreme joys in the middle of godly grief. Isn't that surprising? I think that's surprising. How would you find supreme joy in the middle of the hard circumstances you're walking through, and the hard circumstances you're watching a friend or family member walk through? What would supreme joy be there? Well, I'm going to try and spell out what I believe leads to that. Paul's talking about salvation here, but I think it also has, because he's talking about 
because that word salvation is added in there by the translator, I, it obviously applies to salvation. Repentance ought to lead to salvation. Turning from a sinful life, you know, here's my sinful life, and turning 180 degrees to God, that's repentance. You're taking the sin here that you're living independently from God now and taking, oh man, I have all the sin. Now I'm being like, I just still have the sin, but now it's God's, and now he's dealing with it, right? And it's the same thing with sorrow. And I think that's what, I think he's really planning that word repentance in the same way here, because it's in the context of godly grief. It's saying regarding sorrow, we're doing the same move. I'm turning from independent grieving, independent sorrow, independent pain, in all those ways of self-medicating that, and turning 180 degrees to God. And I'm taking all of that with me. It's not suddenly gone. And now I'm giving it to God. Sorrow in hand, giving it to Him. I go through the same questions, the same doubts, the same big, God, where are you in this? The same comparisons. But now I'm doing it with God. This, in the Bible, Israel would call this lament. There's actually a whole book in the Old Testament called Lamentations. The Hebrews considered lament the highest form of worship in Israel, or at least one of the highest forms. Why would the worst of the worst things that we bring to God be considered one of the highest forms of worship in Israel? I believe it's because we're taking the most precious, most vulnerable parts of our hearts and giving them to God, laying them at his feet, like she said. It's actually a sacrifice of worship. It's saying, God, I can't do this without you. I don't want to do this without you anymore. I have no idea how to do this at all. Saying, God, I don't know where you are in this but I'm giving it to you now. Carrie had a great definition of lament when we were talking about it. It's like saying, um, God, this is my situation, and this is who you are. And then we begin a conversation about the contrast between those two. That helps to bridge the gap. So God promises to be good. My situation ain't good. Now that's a great conversation to lay before the Lord. God, how are you good in this? What do I do with the parts that don't feel good? That's a lament prayer. That's actually a form of worship. If you read Psalms, over half of them are laments. God included that in the Bible for a reason. And if that's the prayer book of Israel... What if half of our, or over half of our conversations with God were meant to be more like that? What do you think we're missing about God and his heart that we don't have those conversations? And what do you think about your relationship with God would change if you did have those conversations with him on a day-to-day basis? Now, I'm not promising you if you have those conversations bam, something's going to change right away. You know, suddenly the blessing's going to fall on your life. But something will begin to change. And it's like that Psalm 147 again. 
that winter picture, God's word speaks into it and it begins to melt. It takes time, but God's slow. He's patient. I mean, even with Zechariah, how long did it take for him to speak after he said he couldn't speak? Anyone? Nine months, right? So at least give yourself that long. This can take a long time, but it's that purposeful joy that we're entering into. Because as we begin to go through that process, as we deal with lament and allow our hearts to be exposed with God rather than walking independent of Him, we actually begin to glimpse the supreme joys that God has for us in the middle of our situation now. These are the eternal truths. Things like, I will never leave you or forsake you, suddenly begin to make sense in the middle of a situation where you scare God's forsaken you. Or having your heart purified. I mean, there was a moment in stuff that we've been walking through where I realized I had turned a corner. I realized, God, I will follow you no matter what. Because this was really hard and I could say no. And the fact that I keep saying yes shows something about me. My heart's being purified. It's a supreme joy. It's so strengthening, relieving to know that no matter what happens, you follow the Lord. Don't you think? It's in that time of lament where you discover that. And it leads really to the supreme joy of closer intimacy. It's like saying, God, I didn't even know you loved me in my worst. I didn't know you'd love me in this pain. I didn't know you'd love me when it was this hard, this bleak this confusing. Wow, you really do hold my world together. So let's take a moment and consider this in prayer. Turn to God with our stuff and let this adventure and joy, this continuing adventure joy, be something that we engage with right now and this week. Jesus, we turn to you. We thank you that when you came, our options changed. that the griefs that we carried, the sorrows that we, we were holding on our own, that we felt we had to deal with independently, that we watched people around us deal with in healthy and unhealthy ways, that when you came and when you've come for us now in our lives, things can change. Because of godly grief and godly sorrow, because of lament that looks like repenting 180 degrees and bringing you our stuff. Because of that, we can experience you carrying our sorrows and our griefs and you then meeting us in ways that birth in us a supreme joy, a joy that's unshakable and steadfast no matter what we're actually feeling. We thank you for the sweet invitation from your word and from Paul. And we thank you, Jesus, that you have made this possible through your Holy Spirit. Would you help us explore what it means to process these things with you in conversation this week as they come up? Teach us. Train us. Open us. Would you melt our hearts and allow us to walk in that closer intimacy with you? That's what our heart really desires. 
Show us that in our situations. And would you bring healing, life, and joy? Amen. We pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the High Street Community Church weekly message. We hope you were encouraged to follow Jesus. For more, please subscribe to our podcast or visit us online at hscchurch.org.